Welcome back to the Stronger by Science Fireside Chat series. We are back again with our fifth episode, um, and I believe we're going to kick things off this time with an announcement and what you have here in the outline as a, quote, flex. Is that is that the kind of content we're putting out now? We're just a flex, a flex uh, channel, I guess? Well, as a professional in two physique sports, I think flexing is kind of within my domain. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so the announcement, uh, I haven't mentioned this on anything in the Stronger by Science universe yet, but I recently became involved with Eric Helms, unfortunately. Um, so Eric Helms and uh, Dr. Joe over at the Diet Doc, they recently started something called the Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind, uh, and there's a board of people on it. Um, and basically the members of the board with Dr. Joe and with, uh, with Eric Helms, we have these monthly roundtable discussions about best practices and the whole idea is to kind of unify the nutrition coaching world and give some guidance and some kind of uh, professional advice about not just the coaching itself but also how to be an effective nutrition coach uh, whether it comes to uh, the way you interact with clients where you get your information and how you run your coaching business as well um, so i'm on the board other people on the board, we've got uh, Corey Propes, Jennifer Souders, Brian St. Pierre, Gabrielle uh, Fundero, and Paul Revelia. Some of those people are doctors, but I'm not that into titles. But a lot of really good people on the board. And uh, if you're interested, you can go to nutritioncoachingglobal.com and find more information. So that's the announcement. Now the flex. A million years ago, I forget when, we talked about a study on the podcast. And it was looking at a placebo effect of an imaginary low-calorie diet. And it was basically like, we told these folks they were on a low-calorie diet. They weren't. They lost a ton of weight. And when we talked about it, I basically saw the title and I was like, ooh, this is intriguing. Then I saw the stats and I was like, this is way less intriguing than I thought. And I talked about some of the, the shortcomings statistically. I don't recall exactly how deep into the details we got, but I think we kind of just you know, talked about the highlights of the statistical shortcomings. Turns out a couple weeks ago, somebody sent me on Twitter um, a letter to the editor that was written that basically talked about all the stuff that we, I'm pretty sure we covered on the show. And so here's the take home point. If you want to stay up to date with the literature, that's an excellent idea. That's definitely a good idea. However, if you want to be miles ahead of the literature, you need to be listening to this podcast um, and somewhere between our dating advice and our fashion advice, you're going to find stuff that is literally months ahead of the literature. So that's the flex. Works for me. Cool. All right. Let's, uh, let's get into just like the standard fireside chat stuff. Just fun, upbeat, off-topic conversations, uh, topics submitted by you, the listeners. And one of the things someone asked us, was what fitness myths are out there that we personally wish were true? Do you want to kick this off or do you want me to go first? I would love to kick this one off. Um, I, I have two of them. So the first one is that supplements are, are super important. Um, supplements when I was like 14 or 15, um, I remember thinking that getting on a very generic, probably amino spiked protein powder was going to really bring my physique to the next level. Um, and I also remember kind of judging a kid really hard on my football team because 
he was taking NO Explode, the original formula that had creatine in it. Mm -hmm. And we were all like, dude, like we all want to win, but there are certain ethical guidelines that we all need to (laughs) like, (laughs) we were like, listen, dude, like is a run at state really worth it? If you have to sacrifice this much in the process, like think of your health, think of what you're going to tell your kids when they see that, you know, that championship ring. And you have to say, yeah, but it was, you know, fueled by creatine. Dude, I, I got to say all of the uh, all of the creatine alarmism is some of my favorite stuff ever. Yeah. Because like the footnotes and all of those news stories are absolutely wild. Where it's like, you know, football player who had been taking creatine kills over dead, you know, the night after a big game. Mm-hmm. And then you find out on like paragraph 12 of the story that they went out like binge drinking and had like 47 beers. And it's yeah. like, could, you know, could be creatine poisoning, could be alcohol poisoning. One of those we know for sure is real, and it's definitely creatine poisoning, you know? Yeah, or it's like after the football game, they had a brain hemorrhage. True, but did the creatine contribute? <laughs> maybe <laughs> it wasn't. Who's to say? Maybe it wasn't two concussions in a week. Maybe it was the creatine. I don't know. Um, Okay, so that's one of them. The other one, um, I really wish that genetics just didn't matter that much. Like, I remember as a kid, really never even considering, like, I wonder if I'm built for this, or I wonder what what some of my limitations or ceilings are going to be. And one thing I think is really funny is, I think a lot of people, I think sometimes people set the, the limit too low when they think like, oh, I'm screwed, my genetics are bad, and that sucks. So, I don't want it to be like a limiting thing um, that is like, you know, takes the wind out of your sails. But I remember being younger thinking like, yeah, like maybe some of the like top bodybuilders in the world are like on a ton of drugs. But like if I train hard enough for long enough, like I'm sure I could be like 280 at 6% body fat. Like, (laughs) I mean, I'm doing the right things. And I, I like really believe that for a while. But the thing I find kind of humorous about the uh, the whole genetics thing is like everyone who is super salty on the internet and talks about people being on steroids all the time, like you probably should be salty, but it probably has a lot more to do with genes than steroids. So like every time, you, you know the people that it's like every time there's a decent physique, they go in the comments and they're like, oh, it's steroids. And it's like... You, you see that with strength too. Like the, yeah. there is a subculture of people who believe that like... You know, most people can probably bench two plates naturally, but like, it's probably, it's probably possible for some genetic outliers to bench 315, but there's like a 90% <laughs> chance you're on gear if you bench three wheels and four, four plates, like it's out of the question. Like to do that naturally, it would take, you know, one in a trillion genetics and odds are that's not you. Right. And it's just yeah. like, really though? Yeah. So it, it's like a, it, it's like um I wish I could go back and believe that that genetics just really wasn't a factor whatsoever. Um, but I think some people take that a little too far, and they're like, "Listen, if you're if you're squatting four hundred five, you're just an absolute freak," you know. So, so I <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of hesitate to bring that one up. But yeah, when I was a, when I was a kid, like getting into it at like fourteen, I thought with just the right supplement combination and enough time, literally any physique can be obtained. Uh, I wish I could go back. If I can just add some commentary on top of that. Sure. One of so one of the talking points I see brought up around this whole discussion a lot is like, you know, the these people on YouTube or Instagram or whatever 
who maybe are running gear, maybe just have great genes, and they're like setting new lifters up with false expectations for what to expect. And then like, they're going to realize they can't get there and then get demotivated and quit. I just don't know that I buy that literally at all. So like virtually everyone I know who's been training for a long time, like at least a decade, went into training with completely ridiculous, unrealistic expectations. Yeah. So my uh, one of my first introductions to powerlifting was it was right after Andy Bolton set the squat record. Um, I believe it was 12, 13 pounds. Um, and he had, he had previously done the first thousand pound deadlift, maybe like three months prior. Uh, and I remember seeing that and being like, holy shit, that's so cool. That's so much weight. I didn't know anything about equip lifting, but I was like, well, fuck it. I'm going to deadlift a thousand and squat 1200. Like that, that's what I was thinking for probably the first, like first, like six months. And then I, I understood equip lifting better. And I was like, well, Okay, maybe a 1200 squat is out of the picture, but I hear deadlift suits don't help that much. So 1000 pound deadlift still for sure. <laughs> and maybe I'll tone the squat down to like 900. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it finally became clear to me that I wasn't going to hit those numbers. But like, I don't give a shit. Training's still fun, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think, like I said, I, I really, I, I very distinctly remember a time when I was 19, I think. And this is way too old to still be thinking this. <laughs> I was 19. I had like a good block of training, like really was starting to put on some muscle. And I was like, should I shoot for, should I try to build up to like a good stout, like 270? That was, <laughs> I, was I really had that. I was like, I mean, Sure. Could I get fluffy, maybe balloon up to 12% body fat at, at 270? Sure. I'll cut it later. But I really thought I had like IFBB pro genetics and like whether or not I happened to try some steroids along the line was kind of immaterial. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, but once I realized that that wasn't going to happen, it's not like I was like, damn, I've been lied to. I'm never going to touch a weight again. Yeah. No, so I, I'm like the poster child for being fed false expectations because early on so for like the first year or so that i was into powerlifting uh i trained with a crew of people and only me and like one of the other dudes was drug free like everyone else was on was on stuff um and like they gave me advice as if i wasn't drug free and so i'm like 5'10 and they were like, yeah, like at 5'10", if you want to be competitive in powerlifting, you need to at least fill out the 275 class. So, I mean, so that's completely delusional. I feel like it's a little bit less delusional for me than you because I'm a little <laughs> bit taller than you are and have a slightly larger frame. But like I've been 275 and it that's not a good fucking look. <laughs> like there's there's a 0% chance that I could ever fill out anything approximating 275 without just being incredibly fat. Um but like it, it wasn't just I was seeing it on social media cuz like social media effectively didn't exist back then. Uh YouTube was a thing but like Scooby was the entirety of the YouTube fitness community. 
but no, like I was being told that by people I knew and trusted in person. Yeah. Um, giving me like wildly unrealistic expectations, both about what I what I might be able to lift eventually and how much muscle I should be able to build and what sort of weight class I should be able to fill out. So like, dude, I was laboring under wildly unrealistic expectations for a long time. And like, it's fine, you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, it's fine. Like, I look back and I'm not upset. I just think it's funny. Yeah, you know? yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like, like I said, um, I wish I could go back to genuinely believing like, ah, genetics really don't factor in. But uh, but that's not a not a not an excuse to be like, listen, you know, my genetics are trash. I should just give up and never try, you know? Yeah. So what about you? What, what are some of the fitness myths that you wish were true? Uh, so two are completely opposite and I wish that they could simultaneously be true. One is that overtraining is a complete and utter myth. And the other one is kind of like the Arthur Jones one set to failure, like once every 10 days is sufficient to maximize muscle growth. And the reason I wish both of those things were true is I like flexibility in training. Um, and, you know, you know, so at, at different periods of time, training means different things to me. So sometimes I've registered for a meet and it's like, okay, I'm going to fucking kill it for the next like four to six months and try to put up the biggest total possible. And sometimes it's like, you know, I have a lot of work going on. Training isn't as high of a priority. I'm just going to do a little of it to, you know, feel good and help maintain sanity. And if both of those myths were simultaneously true... I could like train like a madman, never overtrain, everything would be awesome. And like there there are times and there have been periods of time in my life where I wish my entire existence was just like wake up, eat breakfast, go to the gym, train for four hours, eat lunch, go back to the gym, train for six hours, eat dinner, go to bed. Like that sounds great to me. It's not feasible. But uh, yeah, so I wish overtraining was actually a myth. Um and so on the flip side, I also wish that one set to failure to maximize muscle growth wasn't a myth. Uh, so then, you know, during times that I'm not training as much and don't have as much time to train, I could still get just as good of results. So like if both of those things were true, there would be a, a tremendous amount of available flexibility in terms of like optimal and workable training parameters. Uh, so that would be pretty sweet. And then the other one that I wish was true, um, <laughs> so on the podcast before, we both talked about how for a period of time we bought into the whole keto thing, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. So I I wish that everything that was promoted by, like, hardcore ketophiles was actually true, that, like, as long as you cut out carbs and kept insulin low and, like, the carbohydrate-insulin hypothesis of obesity was 100% accurate... That, like, you just cut out carbs and you necessarily get shredded. Like, I've done that before. I was pretty strict keto for eight, nine months. Uh, <laughs> I lost, like, the initial, like, five, ten pounds of water weight that you do. And lost, I don't know, maybe another five pounds on top of that over the entire period. And, like, that was that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the thing is, like, I kind of like keto. Uh... So for me, when, when I think about foods that I crave, I don't really crave bread. I don't really crave sweets. Mm -hmm. To me, like the most craveable food in existence is either like smoked brisket or like a well-cooked ribeye or um, 
like slow cooked beef ribs, something like that. That's like mm-hmm. very savory, very fatty, very indulgent. Um, so like it, it sure would be great if that was my entire diet and I could get super lean in the process. Um, so yeah, that's, that is a myth that I very much wish was true. You know, based on what you're describing, have you considered the carnivore diet? (laughs) I mean, is it possible you just botched it and you should have been on the carnivore diet? So when I was doing keto, it was, it was effectively carnivore. Yeah. Um, cause I was in college and so I didn't have, I didn't have much money. Um, and so like the cheapest protein source other than like tuna, and I don't, I don't want to just eat canned tuna because, you know, there's, there's mercury and I don't want to rot my brain. Right. Um, like I, I, so I'm not trying to be alarmist. You can certainly eat some tuna, but I, I don't want to try to consume like, you know, 300 grams of protein per day from tuna. That's right. probably not smart. Yes. Um, so I was just living on a diet of bone in skin on chicken thighs, um, so I mean, I I think like the people who are really into carnivore are really into like beef and steak. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like eighty percent of my calories were bone in skin on chicken thighs. Vegetables were too expensive. I was not eating vegetables. Um, so yeah, it, it was it was carnivore esque. But yeah, I don't know. Cool. Well, maybe you know if we keep hoping that the science will come along and improve that. All those myths that we held to, maybe they are true. That'd be that'd be terrific. But that'd for now, great. for now, it doesn't look like it. Um, another question we got: We've talked a little bit about uh, television and movies. Someone also asked what music we're into, and I think you've got a, a more detailed answer than me. Yeah, you. you so can I'm going to start. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a huge Radiohead fan. Um, that's something that Jeff Nippard and I have bonded over is we both love Radiohead and there, there's really no casual Radiohead fan. It's like if you're if you like Radiohead, you really like them. And and yeah, so Radiohead's probably my favorite band ever by a pretty comfortable margin. Uh, but another list of bands I like, it's uh, kind of all over the place. I mean, not not that far all over the place, but I like Interpol. I like the Strokes, who just released a new album like a week ago like the Black Keys, especially some of the albums they put out in the mid to late 2000s were absolutely incredible. Um, They did a a Junior Kimbrough cover album that was sick. Um, I like Wilco, um, which is kind of like alt country, which is pretty unique. I also like Rage Against the Machine. And what's really funny is I went to Lollapalooza one year and they were co-headlining. So the the people that uh, were running Lollapalooza were like, well, we'll have Wilco and, and Rage Against the Machine play at the same time because there is no crossover in that Venn diagram of like, <laughs> yeah. I like kind of folk music alt country and I also happen to like Rage Against the Machine. I was the only person probably in the universe who actually went to one half of the Wilco show and then walked across the park to catch <laughs> the second half of the Rage show. I, I literally could not pick. Um I like Audio Slave as well, um, which is, I mean, essentially the, you know, it's the Rage Band plus Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell's voice is insane. Absolutely incredible. Um, I also like Dave Rawlings and Gillian Welch. They're like a kind of folk country. Uh, they, they often do things together as a duo. 
Um, yeah, so th those are the bands that I listen to most frequently. Uh, a little bit of a range there, but not quite the same range that I'm seeing in your list. So why, why don't you take it away from here? Yeah, so n now that I'm looking over this, I realize I probably shouldn't just read all of these out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in the show notes, I can just include the full list there. I think I, I think that's a good way to do this. Sure. I, I don't want this to become the podcast equivalent of the Lillibridge training ebook. So here's here's a fun piece of like powerlifting content lore from like circa 2013. Uh, so the Lillibridges, if you don't know about them this is a tangent it's fine uh so they're a family who are all incredibly good power lifters uh eric lillibridge has held the total world record at 125 or 275 uh 125 kilos and 308 or 140 kilos um ernie lillibridge jr at one time held the record at 198 uh or 90 kilos very very good um, and then the father, Ernie Sr., has, I think he's held some master's records. Um, you know, he totals 1,900, 2,000 plus, and he's like 50-something. So all all very, very good lifters. They put out an ebook that was, I think it was just called The Lillibridge Method. Um, this was at like the height of their fame in the powerlifting community. And, you know, everyone was interested in how they train. So they're like, we're going to put this together in an ebook drop it on the masses. And so the thing is, I'm I'm not going to make any judgments about whether their program was good. Because um, I mean, clearly it was good enough for them. They're all fucking strong. <laughs> yeah. But when the ebook came out, it got memed on pretty heavily because the ebook itself was like, it was either 14 or 17 pages. It was one of the two. The actual program was like five of those pages almost half of the pages were just like full color photos of like one of the members of the family lifting. And then I think the last three pages of the book were like, hey, if you're gonna be doing this program, you're gonna be lifting heavy, you're gonna be going hard, you need music that's loud enough and aggressive enough to be able to fuel your training. So the last like three pages were just like music suggestions. And it was all <laughs> it was all like popular hard rock bands. Um, so, it, in the interest of not doing that on the podcast, uh, we'll include the full list in the show notes, but some of the high points for me, my four favorite bands have been my four favorite bands since like 2004, uh, and they're Rise Against, Anne Berlin, Yellow Card, and Silverstein. Um, so, you know, that should tell you a little bit about what kind of like mental state I was in and what kind of crowd I ran in uh, when I was approximately that age. But yeah, they still fucking slap. They're great. Um, we, so I, I think the only, <laughs> the only musical act that we share between our two lists, uh, is I'm also very into Rage Against the Machine. Um, the only other, like, pretty hard band that I still listen to quite a bit is Lamb of God. Um, haven't really listened to any of their newer stuff, but, uh, their album Sacrament is, uh, is fantastic. I love it. In terms of like kind of mainstream music, I've said this before publicly, and I don't think people actually believe me. I unironically love Post Malone. You do. It's true. Dude, Post Malone's awesome. Um, let's see. I really like early B.O.B., really into Daft Punk. Um, I really like Bournes and Churches, so kind of like 
electronic type music. Um, in terms of like some slightly less popular acts, so going along with Rise Against Anne Berlin, Yellow Card, uh, also really into Sayasin. They recently got back together. Their new stuff is quite good. Uh, a, a group that I think like people into hip hop know about that people not into hip hop don't know about is Run the Jewels. Fucking love Run the Jewels. Um, so another artist that probably everyone in the UK knows about that no one outside the UK knows about is Stormzy. Uh, so he's a UK-based rapper. Really like his stuff. Um, like some older music as well. So really like Billy Joel, really like Elton John, really like Earth, Wind, and Fire. And then probably realistically the stuff I listen to the most. Um, so I'll just like put this on when I'm working is... Uh, you know, because it doesn't have vocals, so it's not going to distract me, is I really like classical guitar music. So uh, John Williams is maybe the best classical guitarist ever. Um, not the John Williams who did the Star Wars soundtrack, but another John Williams. Uh, Andre Segovia, old school master. Uh, and then for more modern stuff, Andy McKee is really, really good. Um, and I also listen to a lot of just like general synthwave because it's you know, it's chill vibes, put it on when I'm working. Um, so yeah, fairly eclectic mix. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's what I'm into. It's interesting because I'm looking at the full list and one of the people you didn't mention, you actually listed twice. So there's quite a conflict brewing uh, in your mind here. Who, uh, who was it? You put Kanye twice and you didn't mention him. Did I? You did. Oh, well, that was an accident. I mean, I like Kanye. Uh, in, yeah. I don't know. So I, I feel like, I feel like my musical tastes have shifted. So, so they go through phases and I mostly just like the artist's stuff that they put out when I initially got into them. It's yeah. like Kanye, I really like his early stuff. I don't really like his current stuff, but apparently yeah. his current stuff is quite good and like people seem to like it. Um, so, so one of the other ones where I kind of like their early stuff considerably more, and I think this is much less controversial, is Eminem. So I, Eminem's most recent album was pretty good, but really everything up to the Eminem show was great. Everything between the Eminem show and his most recent album was pretty meh. Like, th there were some good tracks, but it, it wasn't his best. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know, dude. I, I, just, I just like music. And it yeah. kind of depends. Uh, kind of depends what mood I'm in. Now, do you believe that you really? Is it really your choice to select what kind of music you listen to, or do you think that's predetermined? <laughs> so that that's a clunky that's a, segue. That's a good segue. Oh, um, we we had uh, different opinions about the quality of that segue. Yeah, we did. So uh, we talked previously on the show uh, about Debs, which recently ended, and we're not going to give away any spoilers because that's way too recent to do that. But one of the, the themes that comes up in the show is that of determinism. And Greg, you mentioned you wanted to talk about this on the show. And I literally know nothing about it other than the fact that I've watched Debs. So I'm going to let you kind of steer the ship here. And then I will either agree or disagree or maybe form my own kind of school of philosophical thought <laughs> on the fly. Well, so I, I'm not just like putting this forward. This is something that, that listeners asked about. Um so, I mean, you mentioned you don't have like a philosophical commitment one way or the other here, mm -hmm. but you have watched devs. Correct. And I know 
you consume little enough media that you have the headspace to actually think about the media you consume. So if that is like your only point of reference, how how do you just personally gut instinct feel about the concept of determinism? Uh, like as a definition or w whether or not it seems like a valid uh, school of thought? More so the latter. Okay, so... My my initial thoughts. I guess the can you can you give like a an operational definition? Yeah. So it's so like philosophical determinism is basically the idea that kind of the world around us is as it seems. Like every effect is brought about by prior causes. Um, you know, n nothing is caused that doesn't have a prior effect, and uh, causes determine effects. So. You know, you can have like an A to B to C to D to E sequence of events um, such that, uh, so an implication of determinism, uh, which this is literally impossible because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, but if there was a way to, to know the positions and states of every particle in the universe at any given point in time, if you had all of that information and you knew it perfectly, then you could predict going back in time, everything that has ever happened, and going forward, everything that ever will happen. And, and there's, there's, some, uh, there's some nuance to that. So, you know, you could then get into a, a discussion of are we living in a single world or do we believe in, like, the multi-world hypothesis? Um, but classical determinism is basically that idea I put forth. Okay. Now, before I answer this, I want to make one thing very clear. Someone might be listening and thinking, wow, these two uh, weightlifting people, you know, the bodybuilder and the powerlifter fancy themselves as philosophers now. Um, I am coming at this from the perspective of an intellectual dumbass. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. So if you're like cringing, thinking, oh, great, Eric's taking on philosophy. Not at all the case. I don't understand any of this. However, I will have an opinion. Um, Th that's pretty much where I'm at as well. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, cause I could imagine somebody being like, oh God, here they go. You know? Um, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to believe that there's like free will and choices that occur that are not purely predetermined. Oh, so, so that is worth mentioning. Like, I, I think a lot of people, they hear about the concept and they're like, yeah, the laws of physics seem to function reasonably well. Sure. We live in a deterministic world, but a logical implication of, at least like strict classical determinism is that free will free will is an illusion. Yeah, yeah. So I am gonna Un unless you're a fucking compatibilist, and I'm sure there's gonna be compat compatibilists in my DMs who mm. are really mad at me about this. I don't understand compatibilism. And if you don't know what compatibilism is, that's fine. We're well, we're not gonna discuss it because it's it's confusing, and I don't think it makes sense. Well, people are going to very forcefully help you understand it in your DMs, it sounds like. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to say, like, I think that... I, I still think there's that little bit of uncertainty that I think is is influenced by, by uh, people making choices, you know, having free will to do so. So I feel like if you're talking about, like, is this stuff all kind of... You know, th that idea of if you know the state of all these things, can you then like predict or backtrack with, with perfect accuracy? I think you could get really damn close, but I don't think it would be perfect. I think there are these these key, that key element of free will and choices that people make at their own volition 
that is inherently not it cannot be predicted perfectly that that would be my my answer so uh, a determinist's answer to that would be like okay like maybe we can't predict things perfectly that very well could be a, a matter of either a just not having enough information to do so right or b you know possibly like a mini world's cosmology of like we would need to basically predict like a, a branching series of of everything that could happen because like quantum weirdness mm-hmm. splits the universe every time the a wave function uh collapses so yeah i don't know yeah i i'm i'm gonna uh give myself the very pleasant narrative that i have total control over everything i do and i have free will and it's great so here's the question what is a decision fundamentally like on a on a physical basis uh on a physical basis yeah it's all the little neurons you know hanging around with all the little uh uh, neurotransmitters you jostle it around a little bit you get a decision yeah so it's something that has to do with you know a physical substrate brain tissue or if you think that like consciousness isn't fully housed in the brain uh the mind if you will if if that's the terminology you, you prefer but I mean, ultimately, if you think that it has something to do with brain function and neurotransmitters, etc., that's still an outcome of a physical system. And like virtually every physical system that we're aware of behaves under deterministic principles. So why why is your brain different? Um, I don't know. I don't really know how brains work. I, I try not to think too hard about it. Yeah, and, and so so that that is actually one of the complications here. Yeah, no one fucking knows how brains work. Yeah, that's so what, that's what I mean. Th- that's probably too broad of a statement. Like, we know a lot about how brains work, but it's it's not like there's a fully functioning model of a human brain that w- we can like use to predict brain function super super accurately. Right. Um. So so yeah, like I certainly think that this is an open question. So my so I, I do actually buy the idea of classical determinism. Um, and I want to make it clear that that's not like, that's not like an intransigent philosophical commitment that's at the core of my being that I could not possibly be convinced otherwise of. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, it's not, it's not like a commitment that I hold super strongly, but for me at least, um, I kind of view I kind of view it as like a reasonable null hypothesis. Yeah. That like we don't know everything about how brains work. We don't know everything about how the human mind functions. But we know a hell of a lot about how physical systems function generally. They all seem to basically be deterministic. Um unless you're dealing with like quantum weirdness, but like unless you're positing that there's some sort of like higher aspect of humanity that is like then controlling the collapse of the wave functions fucking going on in your neurons and your brain that like then can robustly make decisions while still adhering to strict determinism i don't know that just seems weird that seems like it it violates occam's razor like you're you're proposing more shit to explain something that should be able to be explained considerably easier um so yeah like to me until we gather more data, like a, a strict deterministic view of the world, 
seems like a relatively useful null that I haven't seen super strong evidence against. Uh, and like I said, a, a an implication of that is that free will doesn't exist, which is like a really trippy idea that I think people have a hard time wrapping their brains around. Um, yeah. But I don't know. Like, I, I'm kind of comfortable with it. Oh, I don't think I am. <laughs> I, I like uh, either having free will or pretending I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I think people like to have the... Well, I don't know. Do people like the idea that they own their decisions? So typically they do. And yeah. so uh, I had... Oh, okay, so we mentioned at the top of this segment that, that neither of us are philosophers by by any definition of the term <laughs> right the only philosophy well, I, I, I am a doctor of philosophy but that is true yeah so the, the only philosophy that i do actually have formal training in that i took like actual classes for is moral philosophy um so i do know a little bit more about that i, I don't profess myself to be an expert by any means but like i i get the foundations of that better um and so i had I had some uh, some ethical quandaries about whether I wanted to discuss this on the podcast in general, mm-hmm. because one of the things about the determinism discussion and specifically discussions of does free will exist or not is the outcomes of, of telling people that they don't have free will uh, has been studied like in, in laboratory settings before, where essentially you... Um, you have two groups of people. One of them you have, like, you expose them to information or, like, have them read passages about how, like, free will exists and, like, moral choices are are a thing um, versus another group where you expose them to information about how free will doesn't exist. It's all an illusion. Uh, the concept of choice is a farce. And essentially, like, the world is playing out around you. You do what you were always going to do. And, like, what you perceive to be choice is basically just, like, an evolutionary mechanism to keep you from going crazy. Yeah. Um, so you expose people to those two different narratives and then you put them in some sort of, of scenario where they're forced to make a moral choice. And the people who believe in free will then go on to make what is, what would typically be construed as the more ethical choice. Yeah. Whereas people who think free will is, is an illusion behave at least on average statistically speaking less ethically yeah um so i I guess that doesn't actually speak to whether people like the idea of free will or not but it at least says something about how people behave when they no longer believe in it or at least like believe less strongly in it yeah if they've been exposed to the the kind of uh yeah counter argument right before that particular test is done yeah so so like for example I'm, like I said, I'm a little bit ethically conflicted about whether or not we should have talked about this on the podcast because, you know, maybe this becomes a brain worm in some of our (laughs) listeners' heads and they start behaving less ethically. I'm the one saying free will exists. That's your, uh, you can worry about that. I'm fighting against that. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, fair enough. So, you know, I, I decided eventually with that caveat we gave at the top of this section of discussion neither of us are fucking experts you shouldn't trust me like we're just two dudes shooting the shit here yeah um however i would be incredibly uncomfortable with someone going on national television and having the same discussion because whether or not free will exists and whether or not determinism is true 
I kind of think society would function better if, you know, if everyone still kept believing free will existed. Like, yeah. I think that whether or not this is true or false, there would be bad outcomes of fewer people believing in free will. Are you ethically conflicted about devs uh, talking about the, the topic? Um, I kind of just don't think enough people will get it yeah. <laughs> for it to matter that much. And also like media is so fragmented now yeah. that it, it, there's a difference between, you know, devs, which is like a niche show on a single platform that not everyone subscribes to. And certainly not everyone will watch the show it's it's one thing for them to discuss it. It would be totally different for like Tom Brokaw to to have discussed it twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I'm I'm quite skeptical. Uh, I I just think yeah, I, I think you could get a pretty good predictive model going where you'd be like, okay, we we've got this mostly sorted out. But I just I I can't get over. I I can't let go of the idea that there are other factors at play other than just like pure determinism as I understand it, which well, is admittedly quite poorly. Well, so so like I said, so uh, hopefully this isn't like too big of a spoiler for devs. Like if someone watches it, they'll figure this out by like episode three. One, yeah. one of the things going on in the show is basically they have a computer that that they at least think can perfectly project everything that's ever happened and project forward everything that will happen. That's right. That's kind of like... You know, it's a surprise when you learn it in like episode three, but it's that's not like the big twist of the show or anything. So not too right. big of a spoiler. Um, so like I alluded to at the top of this discussion, functionally, that's impossible. Um, the reason why is the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. You can't know the position and momentum, I believe. It's either. Yeah, yeah, I think it's position and momentum, but you can't know the position and momentum of a particle at the same time that by measuring the position, like you affect the momentum. And so then your momentum reading is wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, functionally, you could never perfectly know the the state of, you know, the system of the universe, every particle at a single point in time. So the, the that whole concept is, is literally impossible. Right. So yeah. there will never be at least based on what we know about physics now, there will never be like a perfect test right, of yeah. whether determinism is true or false because it would be impossible to build a system similar to the one in devs. Right, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's, you know, just something fun to stew on and think about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it, it's interesting to think about some of these ideas and like, well, what, what would that mean? Like, what are the implications of that? You know, just... Mm -hmm trying to make sense of the world around you is uh, is a fun trip if you've got some time on your hands, I suppose. So one one implication that I think is is fairly obvious, uh, or, or at least something to consider, is, okay, so if determinism is true, free will is an illusion, then it might be worth thinking about how we would approach, say, the criminal justice system mm -hmm. and just all of that. Yeah. So if free will is true then people who commit crimes or, you know, do heinous things, they made a choice to do that. Maybe that was influenced by their genes. Maybe that was influenced by their environment and upbringing. But like, ultimately, at the point of committing a crime, they made they made a choice to do something that's either wrong or at least illegal. Right. And so then, then, then you, then that brings about the ethical discussion. Like, you know, are you into 
deontology? Are you into um, teleology? Like, you know, is it worth a punitive approach to criminal justice where like they did something bad, they need to be punished for it? Or even if you still believe in free will, you could say like, well, okay, maybe we'll have better societal outcomes if we take a rehabilitative approach, rehabilitative approach, whatever. There may or may not be that syllable there. Yeah. Um, so, so you can have the the ethical discussion of what's the best way to treat this, um, but you, you can at least make an argument for a punitive approach to criminal justice because someone made a bad choice mm-hmm. and maybe they should be punished for it. If you don't accept that free will exists, then they basically do what they were always going to have done. Mm-hmm. They didn't make a, a moral or ethical choice to do something bad or like specifically choose to break the law. That's that is something that was always going to happen. Right. And so then you really can't make an argument for a punitive criminal justice system unless unless a punitive criminal justice system has better societal wide results, which it it doesn't seem to. Right. So then like it would seem fairly obvious that the whole point of criminal justice is, well, okay. Uh, something about these people made them or like, yeah, yeah, like made them do something that was bad that we don't like. So then the whole point of criminal justice is to try to basically change how their brain is wired so that when they are let out, um, they won't do it again. And so then, then the whole point becomes like, you know, how can we make them behave in a more pro-social way when they get out again versus how do we punish them for this thing that they chose to do? Right. Heavy stuff to think about. It is, yeah. How about some lighter stuff? How about some lighter stuff? All right. So you brought a challenge to my attention that I, I had never heard of. You said it's called the Florida Man Challenge. And I guess the premise is you Google Florida Man and then your birthday. Is mm-hmm. that right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, go, go ahead. And so the background here is when you say Florida Man... To a lot of people, that will immediately conjure an image of a news story where someone, you know, 99% of the time a man, hence Florida man, did something wild and it was reported in the news. Um, And so there's this whole idea, I think, that like Florida is, ah, dang, it is basically like the Mad Max universe. Like uniquely... Like there's crazy stuff happening. Yeah, exactly. And so the the Florida man challenge kind of takes that on board and like a Florida man's done something crazy on every day of the year. So just (laughs) Google Florida man and your birthday uh, and see what someone crazy in Florida did on your birthday. So you did the Florida man challenge. What was yours? Um, Oh, there was, there was one, I, I don't remember exactly, but there was one about a very drunk person, uh, doing something with like, Something with spaghetti at Olive Garden, right? Yeah, w- one second. Let me get this pulled up. Or I'll, I'll give mine and you Google it again so you can get like the exact headline. Yeah. Okay, so the one for my birthday was Florida man tased by police after refusing to get out of Walmart ceiling. And so essentially, a guy went into Walmart, uh, decided to like crawl up into the ceiling and refused to get out. Those, those wild Florida people... Uh, pretty crazy while you're still looking for yours i I got mine i got mine okay 
drunk shirtless florida man arrested after shoveling spaghetti in his mouth at olive garden right yeah and, and so one of the one of the great things about florida man stories is like often these headlines raise a lot of questions so like they're good to click on and i think this is the whole reason that this that this genre of journalism exists because like journalism and like the whole internet runs on clicks and traffic and so you you read that headline and you're like dude people eat spaghetti at olive garden how could he have possibly been eating spaghetti so poorly that the cops were called well here's another one for my birthday okay uh thong wearing florida man arrested while building shed with garbage on strangers property so I think that was actually a couple days earlier. So I had that one pulled up as well for my wife's birthday. Yeah, well, it came up for me. Okay, so, and, and that's another one. It asks, it makes you ask so many questions. Yeah. So one, what the fuck is in the water in Florida? What, two, why is this guy wearing a thong? Three, why is he building a shed on his neighbor's, or, or on Some a stranger's part, yeah. property? And four, how does one even build a shed out of garbage? You know? I don't know. So don't know. It, it's it's wonderful clickbait, uh, and so this this is a whole thing, um, and there is this concept on the internet, and I don't know how many people actually believe this, but I feel like it's a plurality, if not a majority, that like what is going on down in Florida, uh, you, you know, something got into the water, and just everyone in Florida is is just batshit insane. Um, so yeah, there's that idea. I want to debunk it lightly a little bit, which is why I wanted to bring this up on the podcast. So in in the U.S., and I assume this is a thing elsewhere as well, there's a concept of sunshine laws. And so the idea behind sunshine, sunshine laws is to make government function more transparent. So whenever the government does stuff and like generates documents, um, they're then accessible to people. Um, and so there, I believe, is a nationwide sunshine law. A lot of states have their own sunshine laws. Um, a lot of official documents generated within your state, you can get your hands on either in like, you know, a county by county database or a statewide database. Or if something isn't, if something isn't easy to find, you can at least get it via a FOIA request. And the thing about Florida's sunshine law is that it went on the books reasonably early and it's very um, it's very lenient. Like you can get your hands on a lot more documents, and I believe that they're organized in a way that is that makes them more searchable and easily accessible. And so, I wouldn't be shocked if the median Floridian is a little bit wilder than like the median <laughs> resident of another state, but it's not as big of a difference as it probably seems. So if you think about those headlines, right, if someone says a Florida man did X, Y, Z, necessarily that means that either it's someone outside the state writing about it or it's someone inside the state writing about it to garner clicks outside of the state. Um, so like, for example, we live in North Carolina. Uh, we live in Raleigh. If someone in Raleigh did something weird and wacky, uh, the, the Raleigh... What's our paper called? Raleigh News and Observer? I One think. of them, yeah. Yeah, so the Raleigh News and Observer wouldn't run a headline that says, North Carolina man does whatever. Like, it would say, like, local man does X, Y, Z. Right. The Durham newspaper wouldn't say, North Carolina man did whatever. It would say, Raleigh man does X, Y, Z. Yeah. And so if... 
the head, a headline that has Florida Man in it is not informative at all to people who live in Florida. Yeah. It would say local person or like the city they live in. Uh, and so essentially this is a, a genre of news that was generated by Florida having an early sunshine law on the books that, that makes their documents very easily searchable and accessible. And so it kind of became like a genre of great clickbait very, very early in the game. And so, like I said, I, I think more states do have laxer sunshine laws now, but it's uh, just like the phrase Florida man has so much cultural purchase already it kind of becomes like a self-perpetuating thing that journalists outside of Florida know that like, man, if I want a crazy story that's going to get clicks, let's just search these public records and like arrest databases in Florida because there is bound to be gold in them hills. Whereas like, you know, it, it wouldn't immediately come to mind to do that for some other state that has a sunshine law that is similar to Florida's. Yeah, now, uh, Florida, its nickname is the Sunshine State. And yeah. Is it safe to assume that that's why they're called Sunshine Laws? You know, if this was a news and current event podcast, I would have done more research. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look into that. I don't, I don't think so. I think Sunshine Laws existed prior to Florida's Sunshine Law. Interesting. Well, that, that's a weird coincidence. Then, I, I, I Florida could be is wrong called about the that. Sunshine State. You've heard that, right? Yeah, I have. Yeah. But uh, I mean, I tell you what, this is a huge relief to me uh, because I know people in Florida. I work with people in Florida, and it is great to hear that this is just kind of an artifact of uh, the way the laws and the journalism works, uh, you know, because I was worried. But but now I, I feel much, much better. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So looking at this, I believe the first Sunshine Law may have been passed federally in 1976. And Florida's, at least like Florida's current version, passed in '91. Man, see, that's wild. See, I, I, I don't know if I don't know if Florida's was. I don't think Florida had one predating the federal one. I'm not totally sure how that works, but it, it is essentially. So, like I said, I, I do kind of assume that there is more wild and wacky stuff going on in Florida than, say, like Idaho, maybe. But uh, it, it's probably not to as extreme of an extent as the average citizen assumes because it is at least partially um it, it is at least partially an artifact of how journalism works and how the sunshine laws work well that that is uh very interesting i, I i'm sure a lot of people are going to be surprised to hear that debunked uh, or, or at least partially debunked yeah for sure all right well i think that does it for today's episode um Greg, you're the host of the show. Tell everybody what they need to hear at the end of an episode. Yeah, so uh, if you're listening to this on whatever, any podcast platform, go rate us if you like the show. If you don't like the show, don't rate it, please. Um, <laughs> if you're watching on YouTube, uh, like, comment, subscribe. Hate myself every time I say that. Gonna keep saying it. If you are interested in asking a question, either for a fireside chat, so something fun, light, off-topic, like philosophical determinism or food stuff or music stuff or anything else, um, you can find the Q&A form to do that at uh, tiny.cc slash sbsqa. If you have questions about anything fitness related, you can ask using the same form. Um, but 
unfortunately, way more fitness questions have been coming in than off-topic questions. Uh, so yeah, if there's just like anything random you want us to talk about, use that form, tiny.cc slash sbsqa. Uh, hope life is treating you well. Hope everything's going well. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.